You are listening to Sick Biz Buzz with me, Hillary Jastrom. Welcome back to Sick Biz Buzz, the sickest podcast empowering chronically ill and disabled entrepreneurs and remote workers, and the only podcast of its kind to our knowledge. A huge thank you goes out to the Good Men Project today. We have been recognized as one of their partner podcasts, and the honor is truly meaningful. GMP was my first home, the fathership, where my entrepreneurship as a professional writer began low almost four years ago. To have their support behind our podcast is unbelievable. Also today, if you haven't already, make sure you download our app to your phone. Simply text SICKBIZ to 36260 for job postings, this podcast, and all the blog posts your heart desires in the categories of business and time and organizational hacks and more. My guest today is a darling friend of mine. And we have worked together to publish books. Now she has published her own book called Think Like a Marketer, How a Shift in Mindset Can Change Everything for Your Business. And as a side note, I want to add, it can change everything for your life. It can change everything if you are a solopreneur as well and building your business because marketing is a huge component of that. We are going to dive into the content of her book, Yes, but we are also going to talk about her, how she is handling her life amidst surprising adversity. When is adversity ever not surprising? And how she has built her successful business, Silver Tree Communications, into the publishing and marketing company it is today. And she has done it all with grace, humor, and compassion. Please welcome my dear friend, Kate Colbert. Kate Colbert is in the studio today, and I am so overjoyed to have you here. This is a momentous occasion, not only because you are becoming one of my very closest friends, but you have a book to talk about now. Welcome. I do. I do. Thank you so much, Hillary, for having me. What a joy I've been um, listening in to your podcast and um, watching your career and participating in so many interesting ways and um, how cool to finally be a guest. So thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. I'm just, I, I'm so thrilled. Yes. And we've been talking about this. I don't even know how long. Well, I feel like I've known you lifetimes. You know how it is. Like you just start talking to somebody and you're like, remember back in 1851? <laughs> <laughs> but you have been writing poetry since the age of six and you are living and wrangling in words for a living. Let's get caught up on what you've been up to since the age of six. Since the age of six. Well, that takes us, (laughs) that takes us way, way back. Um, well, let's see, I got good grades in school. No, we don't want to go back that far. Um, so, so you're absolutely right. Um, my whole life has really been about wordsmithing since I was really little. Started writing in the first grade and fell in love with poetry. And, um, when I went off to college, I studied English and literature, which uh, much to the terror probably of my parents and, and family because they, I'm sure back then, especially without the benefit of the internet that could have 
told them maybe she'll find a career in marketing or something. Um, I'm sure they all thought I somehow was planning to make a living as a poet and um, um, <laughs> which is uh, really scary. My, my dad always used to tell me, um, get an electrical engineering degree, um, get a double E degree. A woman with a double E degree can write her own ticket. Um, and uh, so I always worried I was a, a big disappointment that I went off to be a writer. Um, but uh, several years ago, actually, I happened to be looking at a salary survey online, and I just for kicks, I went to go see what the average uh, electrical engineer was making that year, and I redlined it and sent it to my dad and said, I wanted to let you know you can rest assured now I actually make more than the average electrical engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he was like, finally, I've got my, I've got my confirmation. I can sleep easy tonight. Exactly. exactly. No, I am um, hopefully, as are you, right? Uh, living, living proof that people who dedicate their lives to words, if they do it in a way that helps tell stories for big customers and corporations and the types of things that I do as a storyteller on the marketing side of the world um, can really have very exciting careers um, and fruitful ones. We really do have roofs over our heads. Yes, we do. We don't just, uh, you know, sit out on the street in the refrigerator box with, you know, playing it around our dimes and our cup. Yeah, you actually can. And it's important, too, that people know the consistency that's behind it so that you're not an overnight success story. Like you have plied your way to this point. Yeah, it was a, you know, it was an interesting climb. So certainly I didn't come out of undergrad and go get a great job writing corporate stories for Fortune 500 companies. Um, It was a really interesting organic kind of thing that happened. It was a career path I could never have predicted. Um, Neither could have probably a career coach or anybody else. But um, I, yeah, I went straight from undergrad uh, at Carthage College, um, who I have huge affection for as an institution, went straight into studying um, for my master's in comparative literature and composition and was teaching um, in their undergraduate program at the time. It was a great experience. It was very much focused on creative writing. So short story and, and, analyzing literature, so doing all that whole comparative lit stuff. And uh, I studied with some very, very famous writers and authors, uh, Lucia Cordell-Getzi, David Foster Wallace, may he rest Mm -hmm. in peace, um, and really, you know, came out of that a much, much stronger writer, and then went um, into teaching for a while. So I took that education and taught other people how to write. So I taught at a couple of colleges in the Chicago market. I went ahead and um, taught at Loyola University Chicago, as well as the College of Lake County. And then it really hit me after like a year that I really love this, but I think I would love writing more than I love teaching other people how to write. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was an epiphany for me and felt like a failure, by the way. I thought, oh my gosh, I've spent my whole life telling people I was going to grow up to be a college professor and I'm going to abandon that. And that was a hard decision for me emotionally. But I made the leap and started over at the ground floor, literally um, at a publishing company, um, writing about semiconductors, believe it or not. What? Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, no. So I, at the job interview, that was a real riot, right? I got interviewed for a job for a semiconductor packaging magazine. And the chief editor interviewing me said, well, typically we hire engineers. um, And um, (laughs) And I said, I said, no, that's great. And I said to him, I said, well, I think you have an important decision to make. You need to decide 
whether you think it would be easier to teach a professional writer about semiconductor packaging or if it might be easier to teach an engineer how to write. Oh, my word. And that encapsulates you yeah. right there. That it, is. It was great. Crazy. It was a huge, huge, important part of my career. So I spent several years working for um, Penwell Publishing, um, which is a large trade magazine publishing company based out of Nashua, New Hampshire. And I worked in their Chicago-based office and absolutely loved the experience. I spent a lot of time with engineers. I would go to conferences where um, there were 30,000 attendees and I was the you know, sometimes the only female wearing a, a red uh, press badge. So all 30,000 of them knew who I was. Oh, and my word. A little overwhelming. I was the... I was the first journalist, um, I believe, in the world to break the story about um, the research and development being done um, to create what I what I announced as I thought was going to be an innovative technology that might change the way we think about electronics and wireless access. Mm-hmm. Um, and that technology was called Bluetooth, and I'm wearing a Bluetooth headset right now. So wow, uh, yeah. So that was a zillion years ago, um, but it was a really great experience, and it really honed my writing skills. I think a lot of people who want to write for a living, whether they want to be a novelist or they want to do corporate writing or I think a lot of people think that there is there is the luxury of waiting for divine inspiration and that we've got to have this quiet moment. You can write the good stuff. And writing for a magazine that was sometimes 156 pages on very technical topics that came out every single month um, really was a good foundation for me to learn that you have to write under pressure. You have to learn. there There is no waiting for inspiration. There, there are no muses in professional writing. And you have to just be really good at it and you have to exercise your writing muscles and strengthen them. And, um, and now it, I write from sunup to sundown every day. Um, and certainly some days are probably more inspired than others, but, um, but certainly um, I can write on just about any topic under any amount of pressure. And, and I do, and I'm honored to do so for the clients we have. So yeah, started out as a, a teacher, um, went on to the publishing uh, arena, um, went from there into um, launching my own business, which I ran as a side biz for a while, um, and it's been around for about 16 years. We've been around now, um, and then went into the inside um, of running marketing departments. So I was the head of marketing for a medical sciences university in Chicago, as well as then the head of marketing at a graduate business school. And somewhere in there, I got my MBA in organizational behavior, and finally layered like a truly solid. Um, uh, insights into a broad-based management curriculum, which I think has been really vital for my career running um, a marketing company. And now also we have a book publishing company as well. Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, I was taking a look at your website, which I've been on a trillion times anyways, but the everything that you offer, and it's all, it's all based off of this backbone of you and what you've brought you know, building as a storyteller first, but you've really layered in your credentials. I mean, you did the work to (laughs) understand and get there and then pulling in that organizational piece, which is the piece I believe is missing from my life is, Mm -hmm. is important when you're, when you're running a company, otherwise it's going to be kind of like, um, Oh, well, well, here's something that's coming up today. I guess we'll do this. I guess we'll look at the options, but you really have. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah, The strategy piece I think is missing for so many people, right? I think that, 
Yeah. Especially people who study liberal arts. So if you go into something that is not considered particularly left-brained, um, mm-hmm. there can almost be a resistance to getting an MBA or getting a more technical education. And um, I had that resistance. I was, I was, I think, about 33 or so when I decided to go get my MBA. And I, did, I chose a program that was really for mid-career professionals, a really broad-based leadership MBA program at, at Lake Forest Graduate School of Management. And um, it was, it almost sort of felt like, it, it felt like that moment again when I stopped teaching and went to go work um, at a corporation, at a magazine, I felt like I was giving up on that professorship dream. And I also mm-hmm. sort of felt like I was um, violating something about my own vision for myself when I decided to get my MBA. And it was without doubt, like in the top five best decisions of my life. And I I certainly would not run and enjoy the kind of businesses I have today if I didn't, if I hadn't learned how to think like other professions. How do you think like an accountant? How do you think like an economist? How do you think like a general manager? How do you think like the HR department? All of those things really taught me how to have a higher viewpoint over businesses, whether I worked in them or I owned them um, and was building them. And that really, um, that shift for me, that mindset broadening was really um, pivotal for my career. And we're going to get into that think like a dot, 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 because Mm -hmm. that is a premise that your book is based on. But before we get there, I want people to understand your adversities that you have dealt with. So you've built this big, beautiful dream. You, you've actually made it tangible. You're living in it. You are employing people in it. And, and it's fabulous. And any kind of garden variety, quote unquote, normal human would find that there would be challenges along the way. But you did this when you were pretty sick sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I have a ho- whole host of health issues that have, have plagued me throughout my life. Some of them relatively minor and some of them relatively serious. And, um, really before I was able to take my company onto a new trajectory and really grow the way we have in the last six years or so, I was actually, um, pretty sick. So I have a a condition called interstitial cystitis. Some people just call it IC um, or painful bladder disorder. Um, And it's essentially um, sort of a connective tissue type of problem um, where uh, patients essentially have no lining in their bladder. So while most people can walk around with a full bladder and it's not particularly uncomfortable or painful until it's relatively full, um, for those of us who don't really have any lining sort of protecting us, that's pretty caustic. Um, mm. and pretty painful. And uh, an IC flare um, is pretty serious. I was having symptoms for years before we were able to figure out what was going on. Um, but an IC flare, I would liken it to, um, so you can go from feeling completely fine to it feeling like everything kind of from the middle of your rib cage all the way down to sort of below the curve of your butt, um, Mm -hmm. starts to burn. Um, And so there's this massive burning sensation throughout all of your internal organs. Um, And it's it's related to um, a pretty serious drop in pH. So the body, the tissues um, become um, acidic really rapidly and it begins burning. Um, And it's, so it sort of starts out like feeling like a really bad backache. And then sometimes within minutes, um, you can't breathe and you're doubled over and you're crying and you're whimpering. And 
Um, and it's really, really tough. And um, I, I went a lot of traditional routes for treatment and just wasn't finding a whole lot of help um, from urologists who, you know, like, you know, with all due respect, I worked at a medical school for many years, but with all due respect for allopathic physicians, they have really been trained, at least in America, to believe that when you walk into a doctor's office, you have one of two things wrong with you. You mm. either have too many organs or not enough medications. And um, wow, that was that has been my experience with all of my health issues, right? So people want to either cut things out of you or fill you full of chemicals. And mm-hmm. um, luckily, I, I have been pretty resistant to that approach to medicine for most of my adult life. But but there was a period of time, um, probably about six or seven years ago, where my IC was so serious. Um, I there there is actually a supplement, like sort of a. Um, a godsend, if I can use that phrase, um, as somebody who doesn't believe in God, but um, but there is a, <laughs> sort of ironic. Um, but there's a, a supplement on the market that was designed actually initially for um, heartburn, and it's called Prelief, like relief with a P. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually changes the um, pH in the body really rapidly to be able to um, pull you back up to alkaline really quickly. Um, and I can go from like a level nine pain down to about a two in about 15 minutes if I take two of them. So finding rescue relief um, was vital. I think it's probably what has kept me alive. And I've had the opportunity to communicate with the CEO of the pharmaceutical company that makes Prelief to let him know um, that their product has saved my life. I was pretty seriously suicidal for quite a long time. Um, so I remember when I was working at the graduate school, I would spend most of my 40 minute commute to and from thinking about different ways to end it all. Um, and I was working on figuring out how to go on to disability because when you have to pee every five minutes during a flare, (laughs) um, it's to work in a traditional corporate environment. Um, you can't just keep getting up and walking out of the conference room when you're in a meeting with the president or, um, and it was just really becoming untenable for a while. Um, But as I said, I am very, very lucky. I did a lot of my own research, figured out that a lot of what was causing my flares was related to inflammation, which was related to a lot of food allergies. um, And I completely transformed the way I eat and live and I'm doing um, quite well. Um, I think far better sadly far better than most people with IC, but I have been doing my very best to help other patients understand how to get better. Yeah. It almost feels like a mission, doesn't it? When you, when you discover what works for you and that you can go on and you can live and it's even taken you from being suicidal. Then it's like, well, I need to, I need to help people. And I'm so glad you're here. Not just to talk. Yeah. Not just to talk about this, but you're just an amazing human being and every person that you touch is is really benefited so it and the people who are listening who there's a lot of people who have major pain every single day or they have other debilitating conditions as a result of that pain where I mean even even just and this is interesting because uh, my daughter pulled something in her knee a couple weeks Mm -hmm. ago. It was really bad. And um, she shifted how her entire body worked in that time. Different muscles were used and she started developing different pains as a result. Yeah, Compensatory pain. Yeah, yeah, compensatory pain. And so we deal 
with the root pain and then compensatory pain. And this is not your first conquering moment in your life, in your health. You also have come back from cancer and a stroke as well. And and it's just like, the more that I talked to you, like the first time I talked to you, I was like, wow, she's kind of a badass. And then you were like, (laughs) oh, and I have this, this, and this. And I was like, man, she is a lioness. This is amazing. What? Yeah. And you're doing it though. You're getting up every day. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's really about, um, not being defined by it. So I certainly do sometimes need a soft place to fall. And so sometimes I have to remind my husband, like, hey, I'm having a tough moment. Like, you know, bear with me. Um, or, um, you know, bring me some pre-leaf and a glass of water, please. I'm curled up in a ball. Yeah. Um, but, but for the most part, you know, I heard someone say something years and years ago that really shifted everything for me. And, um, and they said, they said, you have a choice when you have a chronic illness. You have a choice between being a diseased person or a person with a disease. Yes. And that for me was life-changing when I realized, like, I could let my IC be me. I could, and in fact, in, interestingly, because people are trying to connect with other patients and help each other, which I really, really admire. And I do some volunteer work for some some educational foundations and what have you. But I've actually seen IC patients on social media who have the disease name or acronym in their profile name, in their identity, so mm. that they're findable. And and there is part of me that thinks that's great. We can support each other that way. And there's another very large part of me that says, wow, like I am, I am just not defined by my health um, in any way. And so I'm so much more than that. But yeah, I've had some stuff. I was, when I was an undergrad, I um, had, uh, was very, very lucky to find it, um, had uh, early stage ovarian cancer when I was 20, um, and, um, have gotten through that. So we just sort of monitor it. So 24 years out, um, it is the kind of disease, unfortunately, that does sometimes come back mm-hmm. 25 years later. Um, so it's something that we, we keep an eye on for sure. And, um, it's been about 11 years now since, um, I had a stroke while I was having surgery related to the ovarian cancer. Incidentally, um, I had a stroke while I was under anesthesia. And wow. um, woke up and we didn't realize for about a week because I was so stoned on painkillers after the surgery that mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> that I had that my memory was um, missing some pretty big chunks and that I have, was missing a great deal of my capacity for names and numbers. And so I didn't know my husband's name for about a year. It took me about a year to learn how to say Robert again. Um, oh, I know. Poor guy. I actually called him by my ex-husband's name for about oh. a year. I did. I did. And it would come out of my mouth. And so what happened to me, and it's a sort of a classic aphasia kind of thing that happens with a lot of strokes is that my ability, I could see number, I could see words in my head and I could write them with a pen or I could type them. Um, But what connected that thought of that word into speech and translated it to speech in my mouth was broken. Um, And so I could see stuff in my head and I couldn't spit it out. And um, so I would spit out another word for it. Um, interestingly, however, and as in fact, as we were getting on this um, recording today, um, I still had a little sort of minor panic moment thinking, what if Hillary asks me something and I can't eloquently articulate it because I can't find the words? Because I still, all these years later, still sometimes struggle, especially when I'm tired, um, to be able to push vocabulary out of my head and through my mouth. Um, 
And there, and there were cer- certain words. So I'm going to see if I can get it now. So fireplace uh, was a word I couldn't wow. say for at least five years. <clears throat> uh, so um, when I had a surgery a few years ago, I woke up and the surgeon, knowing what I'd been through, says to me, what's the thing with what's the thing with the ashes and the bellows? And I'm, you know, stoned. I'm like, what? He's like, you know, the, and I'm like, what? He's like, it has a mantle and a hearth. And I'm like, oh, a fireplace. And he's like, okay, good. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, so oh. he, didn't, he didn't care whether uh, he had done beautiful work on my surgery. Yeah. He wanted to make sure I didn't have a stroke. So um, yeah, so that has been, and then I, I lost all my numbers, which was really frustrating because my husband and I were very recently um, engaged. I don't think we were even married yet when that happened. And um, oh, um, no, actually, we had just gotten married. We'd been married like two months when I had the stroke. And it was interesting because we keep separate finances. And I remember calling him from the drive through at the bank in tears and saying, honey, I, I'm trying to deposit a check, but I'm supposed to write my bank account number on the back of the check and I don't know it. Um, and he said, honey, I don't know your bank account numbers either. And he said, please just come home. We'll find a bank statement. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure it out tomorrow. Um, and that was tough. So, you know, my phone numbers, social security numbers, that kind of stuff. But interestingly, things really old. So again, I, I could tell you my ex-husband's social security number, but not my current <laughs> husband's. Um, so um, yeah, so, you know, the brain is a really fascinating um, and um, delicate thing, but it sure has fought its way back um, to give me back a lot of vocabulary. And as a woman whose entire life was dedicated to words, losing some of those words um, was really terrifying. But it, it helps to have a little bit of a thesaurus in my head. So it lets me grab other words. I can't spit out the ones I was going for. So it's- but you're a natural speaker, you know, and you actually are a member of the, of the National Speakers Association, which, so if you think about that, it's really interesting that you're so accomplished, but yet we, you can still have these areas of vulnerability. Yeah, I think we all do. I mean, think about actors who have horrible stage fright. So like Donny Osmond, you know, really struggled with a horrible, horrible stage fright for a long time. And, and he grew up on camera. Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned um, NSA. So I just had the opportunity to speak at um, Influence 18s or the, the national conference. Um, and I was terrified. I was totally prepared. I knew I was an expert on the material I was speaking about. I was talking about how to what the, my topic really was about how to go from the stage to the page, how public speakers can really advance their careers by publishing a book um, and really embracing what it means to be an author. And I knew the material cold and I felt comfortable and I wasn't afraid of the people in the audience. And, um, and yet, yeah, you know, massive migraine, backache, terror, mm-hmm. you know, all of that sort of hits you. Um, but I'm very lucky that as one, I'm one of those people, whether I'm stepping into a boardroom with a client or onto a stage for a speaking engagement or into a training room to conduct communications workshops that when the rubber meets the road, I'm perfectly comfortable and back into my element. So the fear dissolves immediately for me. Thank goodness. Yeah. I'm kind of like that too, where, um, you know, I think before I do these shows where I'm like, well, what if I don't really know what to say or what if it doesn't come out right? Or what if I stutter or what if I cough or what if I, whatever. And Robert, God bless him is, um, the type of person who's the producer who says, you know, 
even if you burp or even if you whatever, we're going to leave it on. I do. He doesn't edit <laughs> any of that. So, and he got that from uh, Howard Stern, I believe, who does the same uh-huh. thing where it's like, I'm a human being. This is what happens. The best part is just taking that action. And that's what you have done. Sometimes it's like the it's finding the difference between the epiphany and the failure. And the failure is really such an internal definition because, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. right. It's not rejection. Rejection is external and right. it's kind of redirecting the course. But failure comes from inside. Like, I'm not going to do this anymore. But you turn that into an epiphany. It wasn't, I'm failing at this. It is, here's an epiphany. This is what I need to do. And I need to honor myself, even in the midst of dealing with so much. Now, there are people listening today who are having a hard time getting out of bed, who are having a hard time even admitting that they need to work from their bed and feeling okay about that and feeling like that's kind of quote unquote normal. And you know, we hate that word. Um, I wish we could just strike that from our language. It's that because there is no such thing. Um, but what do you want to say to people who are listening and, and they're just amazed by what you've been through, the choices that you've made and how far you've come. Can you go back in time in your own head and think about how they're feeling and what might help them. Yeah, I mean, I do. Oh, gosh, just, I have so much heart for anyone who, whether they're an entrepreneur who's dealing with something chronic or, mm-hmm. um, or acute or somebody who's trying to work within someone else's corporate structure, which I think is even harder, um, you know, that whole how do I leave the conference room if I'm not feeling well type of thing. And and, and I would I would say this. So for me, I kind of use this analogy around houses or structures. So when you're working for someone else, or even if you're working in your own business, but you've built that business to look like other people's businesses, right? To try to meet other people's expectations of what you know what your accounting firm should look like, or what your marketing company should look like. Or um, I think that it, we sometimes find ourselves feeling like we come up short or feeling shame around our humanity because having health challenges is really just part of the human condition, right? And, mm-hmm. but sometimes when we're, we're thinking this doesn't measure up, right? Like I work at a place where if I'm not at my desk by 8.30 in the morning, I'm going to get written up, right? Or mm-hmm. if you work at an organization where you only get a certain number of sick days or you work at an organization where um, I worked at an organization once where I, I had to go home sick because I had pleurisy, which is an infection in the lining of the lungs. So it's, you know, it's, it's like bronchitis, but worse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was super sick, had a, a fever. Um, and, um, you know, my boss's boss told me, go ahead and go home. You you don't look good. And I said, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Um, and I went and I finished up the meeting, gathered my stuff, and went home. And I came back two days later. And my vice president, who was that level between me um, and the president who sent me home, um, came and yelled at me and told me, don't ever put me in that position again. The president came to my office after you left and asked me, does she, and screamed at me, she said, and screamed at me, does she have the stamina for this job? Wow. And, and that is, uh, it's so telling, isn't it? Right? Of, and that of, had nothing to do with chronic illness, right? Any of us could breathe in somebody else's germs when they sneeze on you and catch something. And that's what had happened. And, um, and I have, 
lived with sort of the PTSD around that um, mm-hmm. for many, many years thinking, um, do we really work um, in a work environment that is so Darwinian that only the strong shall survive? And and I did actually have a coach tell me once that, um, that yes, only the strong shall survive. And if you take a look at people sometimes who make it to the C-suite of large organizations, they're typically people who have been very, very lucky in terms of their health. And and I think she she makes a point. And I would say this is if that structure that you're trying to work within, whether it's someone else's structure or it's the way you've built your own business is not working for you, get the hell out of that structure, right? So if you were in a house that had holes in the roof, right? And it was raining mm-hmm. on you at night and you were cold, like you would fix the roof or you would get out. You would find another um, another roof over your head. And I think of work the same way. So I spent a whole lot of my time, whether it was related to my health or just related to whether or not my work style fit into someone's corporate culture, feeling like I didn't measure up. Like maybe I'm not the leader they're looking for, or maybe I don't fit, maybe I'm not good enough, right? Um, until I realized, wait a minute, like I, I am trying to play by somebody else's rules and often those are rules I don't even believe in. And so, so for me, it was, I didn't, I didn't leave sort of nine to five W2 sort of employment because of my health, but I will say that um, it has allowed me a lot more flexibility when I'm having challenges with my health to to run the business myself. And I I still put my clients first, but I absolutely um, am human. Just this morning, I had somebody ask uh, ask us to take on a project for her that the time frame would just damn near kill my team. Um, and so, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she's lovely and we would love to be affiliated with her, but we just can't do it. And so the answer is just going to be no. And, um, you know, I would say to anybody who is struggling, um, you know, try to figure out maybe what's wrong with the people who are criticizing or are making you feel ashamed, not so much what's wrong with you, right? I mean, just just the other day I had someone um, who was reviewing um, my uh, the manuscript of my book, um, which has a random mention about the fact that I have celiac disease. And it was actually a, not a health-related mention. It was a I was providing advice about how to be a better networker at professional conferences. And I was suggesting that you should not skip the lunch and dinner events because they're such important things to go to. And even if you think the food is going to be awful or that you can't eat them, you should go. And I made a random mention that I can never eat the food at these things. I'm a vegetarian and I have celiac disease, so I don't eat gluten. Um, And one of the comments I got from someone um, on my editorial board um, was a little comment bubble over the word celiac disease that said TMI, too much information. And why would that be too much information? And and see, and, and that contributes to the stigmatization, the stigmatizing of anybody talking about the fact that we are people, we are all people, we are all human, we are all trying to function, we all pretty much have the same organs. Some of us right. have fewer, some of us have more. <laughs> but it's we have to talk about these things. And I, I think that is a, a mindset of it worked in the past. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Nobody talked about anything. Nobody talked about divorce. Right. Nobody talked about being sick. Nobody talked about um, emotional feelings. They, they, they didn't talk about this a little redundant, but nobody, nobody talked about mental health issues, diagnoses, any of those things. And on the surface, oh, it looks smooth. Yeah. I've been married for 46 years. Only 28 of those has he been beating the shit out of me. 
Right. You know, it, it's we have to rip the lid off of these things and have them be the new normal because they never stopped being normal. Right. So that just chaps my ass. Yeah, I just, I'm with, I, you know, no, I'm with you, girlfriend. And I think that, <clears throat> you know, and in some ways our social media culture has made some of this worse. Right. And and I'm a contributor to it, too. Right. So I'm really good with a a camera filter and a, the perfect angle on a selfie. And, and so it's really easy for us all to look like we've got perfect skin or that we weigh 30 pounds less than we do, or that we're healthier than we are, or that um, our marriages are happier, that our children are well um, adjusted or what have you. And so there is this um, societal push, I think, for us all to be perfect, or at least to make other people feel like we are, because they don't want to deal with the messiness of our humanity. And, mm-hmm. um, it's tough. It's really tough, but I am I am doing my very best um, as just one person to try to um, embrace my own failings and my um, own humanity and sort of what makes for the difference between a good day and a bad day and be okay with that. And I think if we could all just wake up every morning and um, be okay with where we are, yes. um, but also be willing to work really hard to be stronger. So I do think that if we suffer from um, health crises and and we're in pain, for example, um, we should be fighting. We should be fighting really hard to get the medical establishment to help us. And and I do want to I, I want to circle back to something I said earlier um, around my sort of disdain for for chemicals. I do want to say to people who are listening who are in pain, you cannot even begin to think about something as luxurious as being tested for food allergies or. or you know, trying to detox your body or what have you, if you are in pain. So Mm -hmm. you have to, so please know, you have to do whatever you have to do to get out of pain. So if you need to take some opioid medications that were prescribed for a short period of time so that you can get your wits about you so that you can do the research you need to do, then do that. If you need to, you know, take certain medications to be able to start doing um, the physical therapy work or the exercise that you need to do to be able to get better, do that. Um, just, it's okay. Sometimes we have to treat a crisis as a crisis and know that we'll get to a place where we maybe are no longer dependent on those chemicals or on other things that um, are a literal or proverbial crutch. Um, but, at, at, you know, you've got to start with getting out of pain first. Um, and we live in a modern society and God damn it, you know, nobody should have to be in pain. And that I, I feel that that's sort of the baseline is we, we got to figure out how to get out of pain and, and everything else from there um, goes from there. It's so true. It, it's addressing what you're dealing with right now, whether it's getting out of pain, whether it's alleviating dizziness, whether yeah. it's, it's making sure that you have increased mobility. It's really important to diagnose, not to diagnose, to, to address and to start healing those things in yourself. And pain is panic. Yeah. Pain is like something is wrong. And pain, when you can't treat it, it, it's just absolute anarchy in your body. Something is wrong. We're burning down the house. We don't know what's going on. And and we add on to that, that emotional load. Oh, my goodness. It's ridiculous. Am I dying? I don't know. Is today the day? Uh, you know, I mean, it just, we have to address those things. And I love that you said that. This is the No Shame Show. I want to shout out to <laughs> Teresa Byrne for that. She coined that phrase, the No Shame Show. That. Yeah, whatever you need to do 
there's no judgment. Whether you go totally holistic, whether you go 100% Western, whatever the case is that you need to do, obviously try not to develop any sort of addiction. I mean, we, we can't go there, but we do need to support each other and also say our journeys are different. How you experience pain is different from one body to the next. How you deal with it, the emotional capacity. Some people have a fuller, I guess, you know, well of an emotional capacity to deal with what's going on. Some people are more prone to anxiety. I become a big freak and run around like a chicken with my head cut off. That's me. And, and yeah. you know what? That's that's how I deal with it. My husband is more like, well, I'm going to be in denial until uh, you're throwing that handful of dirt in my coffin. Excellent. <laughs> we're all di- we're all different. And yeah. so I love that you're doing the work. And this circles back beautifully <clears throat> to your book. I love that you're thinking like a <laughs> compassionate person. I love that you're thinking like somebody who is an, you're an empath. I love that you're thinking like an empath when you're supporting people. And your book is thinking like a marketer, is think like a marketer. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's talk about that. Yeah. So the, so the book is called Think Like a Marketer, How a Shift in Mindset Can Change Everything for Your Business. And it is a book for a relatively wide audience of business professionals, um, be it entrepreneurs who are running their own um, little world versus um, C-suite executives and organizations of any size or um, people at the senior manager, director level of any function. Um, This is not a book necessarily for marketers. It is a book for people who want to succeed in business, who want to create more value for their customers, capture more value back from the bottom line to take their businesses from status quo to success story for people who are looking to change their sort of day-to-day work lives from feeling really busy to being truly profitable. It's for organizations and people who really want to go from being mediocre to meaningfully different. And this is a book that offers um, very specific lessons and tips on um, topical areas about how to change some things in your business by first changing your mindset and asking yourself, if I was making this decision about this process um, at our company, how would I do it differently? What decision would I make if I was thinking like a marketer? When I tell my company's story um, on our website or elsewhere, am I doing it in a way that I'm applying a sort of a think like a marketer mindset when I think about um, how mm-hmm. how we address this? So <clears throat> my book is really um, hinges on five key principles, um, uh, the sort of think like a marketer um, concept, and, and and they're fairly simple, and I'll just run you through them. So uh, principle number one, communicate for connection and meaning, not just to transact sales, right? Mm-hmm. So nobody wants to do business with people who only want to talk to you when they're saying, buy now, buy now, buy now. Um, principle number two, live and die by your customer insights. So find out the data, get your hands on the data, find out what the customers care about, listen to them, um, do the research. Um, I work really heavily in the market research space um, and the organizations that are doing the research are the organizations that are succeeding. Principle number three, market in a way that's strategy religious and tactic agnostic. And that's really Hmm. about not getting distracted by the sort of marketing tactic of the day. That's these clients who will say, I think we need a mobile app. 
Um, and I'll say, well, what would what problem will that mobile app solve? I don't know. Um, what are your customers using their <laughs> cell phones for and how might that mobile app connect them more meaningfully to your brand? I don't know. Um, is there something that you could sell on that app and are they really more likely to buy it from their phone from an app or are they really just going to go to your website? I don't know. Um, but we need an app. Um, so it really is about being clear as a business leader, what is your organizational strategy and how do you choose communications and marketing tactics, whether it's direct mail or television commercials or paid search or social media campaigns? How do you choose tactics that serve the strategy, not just because it's the cool tactic du jour? Um, our, the fourth principle of thinking like a marketer is around creating cultures and processes that align with your brand. So I was uh, the other day um, in Dallas staying um, at a really, really lovely um, Hilton Hotel. And um, I realized in my haste to get down there and give a great speech, I had forgotten all kinds of things I was supposed to pack. And I called the front desk and I was it was at the Hilton Anatole, um, which is sort of like a city inside. It's huge. And I called the front desk and said, is there like a little shop or a sundries place where I can come down? I need to buy um, some toothpaste, some shaving cream and a razor. And they said, no, ma'am, we'll bring it to your room. How much do you want? And not every hotel does that, right? Um, mm-hmm. But but the Hilton, you know, like most hotels, um, really, it's their brand is really all about hospitality and ease and serving their business uh, travelers. And um, they were trying to make my life easier. And the fact that I didn't have to go shopping for some things they could give me was was them creating a process that aligned with their brand. And and the the fifth and sort of final component um, of thinking like a marketer that that really underpins the the book is this idea of doing everything in your organization in service of maintaining a virtuous cycle of creating value for the customer and capturing value back for you. And it is my experience working with organizations of every size, whether they're solopreneurs um, or Fortune 500 companies, is that when that cycle gets out of balance, when you're focused so much on creating so tons of content, right? So you might be an amazing blogger and podcaster and this, that, and the other, and you put wonderful things out into the world and your clients love you, but you haven't figured out how to monetize it. You're not going to be in business for very long. Um, and on the other sort of side of the, the this cycle, if you're constantly selling things and making money and making money and making money, but you're not really creating anything valuable long-term um, in a meaningful way for your customers, they will abandon you um, and the cycle will break down and your company will cease to exist. So my book really sort of takes those five principles and then applies them in really practical ways. So I teach you how to develop a brand story. And the book talks about um, you know, how to choose the right uh, marketing tactics, how to monetize your your services. Um, we've got a whole chapter on the pitfalls and opportunities of do-it-yourself marketing. So everything from, you know, should I order those logo t-shirts myself off of a website or should I call a custom specialty broker who knows what they're doing? Um, should I place my own media or should I, you know, um, you know, call a, a media buyer to ha- help me? So everything, you know, how to promote yourself, how to, how to think about distribution as a strategy, how to think about market research, how to really connect with your audience. So some of these are the sort of key topics in the book. And so super excited to have had the opportunity to write this and share what I think are some of the biggest insights of my career and some of the things that um, my clients have been paying me for for a long time. Um, I've packaged up into a book for the marketplace and um, putting it out there, um, hoping that people can apply some of it to their businesses and find themselves a little less harried um, and a lot more happy. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, it applies to the entrepreneur as well, oh, I would yeah. say. 
it's yeah. not it's not just you need to have a company this is the book for you. If you are building your business and marketing is a huge part of that. They always said, you know, uh, the marketing budget, it, it would be cut first. Yeah. I, and I always was like, well, okay. If the, if you want your perception and your brand voice and the face of your company, if you want to just hand that off, fine, yeah. you know, yeah. go right ahead and do that. But so when you're building, you need to definitely come up with a marketing strategy. Um, it's effortless how everything just rolls right out of you when you're, when you're talking about it and it's amazing. No, and you're right. So the solopreneur is a really important audience for this book. I think those Mm -hmm. readers are going to love it. There are entire sections of the book for solopreneurs and, and companies that don't have marketing leaders. Um, so it's really, you know, Mm -hmm. teaching them, um, if they are sort of the default marketing department, they have to learn to think like one. And what does that look like? Um, how do they build their own brand as an individual? So this is going to be, I think, a strong book for accountants, lawyers, physicians, um, as well as you know, director level and above um, at mm-hmm. Fortune 1000 companies. So, um, so far, I've been very, very pleased to hear that those of our first readers um, are really, really loving the book and applying it. I got a text from someone just the other day that um, had had read the book the day before and said, I'm already using your book. Um, I applied some principles and brought brought it into the boardroom to talk to my team about one of your ideas today. So, so that is my hope that um, that I can have sort of quasi clients all over the world who've read the book and are applying the principles and enjoying a, a more profitable um, company that's running more smoothly as a result. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I love that it's already being put into action as a guidebook, that this is the playbook. This is the marketing playbook that you need. You can return to it time and time again. Kate, I have had such a blast having you on. I have one last question for you. And All it's right. a funny one. It's a funny one. Okay. So we so we've known each other for a while, but I don't think there was ever a point where you said, Hi, my name is Kate last name. And I said, Hi, my name is Hillary last name. So there are two ways to pronounce your last your last <laughs> name. And I am trying to figure out if you are more like the Stephen Colbert. Or if you but, are a Colbert, that is a really great question. Um, so I get asked that question almost once or twice a week. Oh. Um, so so here's the thing, and for all of my um, in-laws who are listening, I'm <laughs> I prefer that it be pronounced Colbert. I think it sounds more accurate and seems um, a little classier, or maybe just inherently French. I don't know, but um, <laughs> but but my husband's family, for the most part, um, does pronounce it Colbert. But my husband's name is Robert, and um, I, the musicality of that is a little harsh for me. That whole Robert Colbert, and I know when he, you know, that it's, it's a lot of Berts for me. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll answer to I'll answer to anything. We do have a do have a cousin who um, was recently on who wants to be a millionaire, and I noticed when they introduced him, they they pronounced the last name Colbert, which I thought was great. So I think it plays well for TV. So I'm all for being Colbert um, on famous podcasts like yours. Oh, excellent! Fan and we're famous. I guess I didn't know that. Well, that's good. Oh, that's a newsflash go. today. <laughs> try, try to stay humble, Hillary. But I, yeah, you know, I I struggle with that, man. Oh man. 
And I like, I have to say, as we close, I like the premise of Think Like a Marketer so much because it applies to so many different things in your life. Like when you are at a crossroads or um, you're embarking on a new opportunity, how do I think like this person? You know? Yeah. So here's a little secret I have actually never shared publicly. Um, So we'll go ahead and break this story here on (laughs) on your podcast. Um, So I had originally, and probably still will get around to it. So the Think Like a Marketer business book um, was waiting to be written. But long before I put together the plan for this book, I was actually thinking about writing a book for the general marketplace that was not a business book that was going to be called Live Like a Marketer. Mm-hmm. And and when it's going to have tips around everything from dating to how to manage your money to uh, sort of all the sort of things that that go into um, daily living um, and how to do it more successfully and happily by applying a filter about how would a marketer approach this, um, and I think that book probably still needs to be written. So I'll try to get to that one next. Yes, I was just going to say, please tell me you did not scrap the plans for that because <laughs> I was instantly intrigued by the premise of that. That's, that is fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing everything that you have with us and all in the name of service and helping people. And I know, I know that there are people out there listening today that are like, man, I can do it now. I can do it. And you know, I'm finding more confidence. You know, thank you for showing us the way, Hillary. I think you have done a great service to the world um, by creating this platform for so many people. And um, I'm just honored to have been here and you're an absolute delight. So thank you for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, my, my regards to everyone out there listening, you know, much love and sunshine to you all. Wonderful. Kate Colbert, thank you again. And um, we look for your book on Amazon. Think like a marketer. And I want to make sure I get the subtitle of this right. It is so the subtitle. So you should think I should be able to rattle this off. off the oh, top. No, it, I got it. Yeah. But yeah. I, I do the yeah. same thing with mine, though. It's, it's right because they're long. This, this problem with nonfiction books is you have to have a subtitle <laughs> that explains it. Right. So think, think like a marketer, how a shift in mindset can change everything for your business. Yes. And I'd like to add for your life as well. Thank you. You bet. Kate Colbert is proof that when you have a vision for your life, all you need to do is get after it. We complicate our existences and sometimes we even use excuses to keep us from moving forward. Kate is an author, a writer, a visionary, and a dreamer who is helping people to tend to their own dreams of becoming a writer, of building brands to be reckoned with of encouraging the stories in each of us to find their way to the light. Remember, the name of her book is Think Like a Marketer. And if you would like to get in touch with Kate and work on polishing your own story, you can reach her through her email at kate at silvertreecommunications.com. Did you like what you heard? Please listen, subscribe, share, and leave a review for Sick Biz Buzz wherever podcasts are available. Reviews like yours give our show a boost and get our content into more ears all over the place. We want to thank the Good Men Project again for having our back. And we want to thank you for listening. 
That's it for this week's episode of Sick Biz Buzz. Thanks so much for joining us. Be well.